Welcome, folks, to the 27th episode of the Work Item Podcast. Now, I don't know about you, but I know nothing about how to get started a career in HR. There's a certain air of mystery around uh, that specific path, and David Daniels, who is a veteran HR leader in tech, is here to bring some clarity about the work. David has extensive experience being in HR at Microsoft, Pinterest, and now Snapchat. He shares his insights about going from educational leadership in some of the most prominent tech companies, fighting against the fixed mindset, and uncommon recommendations for folks wanting to get started with their careers. Enjoy the show. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Work Item Podcast. And today I have a very good friend, a uh, former colleague that actually brought me to Microsoft, who is now an HR leader in tech, David Daniels. Welcome, David. Hey there. Nice to see you again. It's been forever. It has absolutely been forever. I think we talked right before the recording that it's been since, what, 2014, something like that? Yeah, something like that, yeah. So a long, long time. David, why don't you tell us more about what are you working on these days? Yeah, uh, right now I'm an HR manager, and uh, which basically essentially means I'm like leading an HR function within the tech industry. Um, and I am currently working at Snapchat, uh, which has been really exciting uh, to make that transition. Um, I was formerly at Microsoft, went from like being a college recruiter to uh, an HR business partner. Um, and then I transitioned to Pinterest. Um, so I was there for a couple of years and been with Snap for about nine months now. It feels like forever. And then in my second life, I'm also a board member of um, Ada Developer Academy, which is a nonprofit, essentially bootcamp program, helping women and gender diverse individuals get into the tech industry. Fascinating. So one of these things that I have literally no idea about what it's like to work in HR. We on our show, we talk to a lot of folks who are product managers. We talk to folks who are designers. You are literally the first person who is uh, an HR leader. <laughs> so tell us more. What it's like to to work in HR? What's the job? Oh like? wow, that's a great question. Uh, it is never a dull moment in HR. And I know the first thing that people think when they hear I work in HR is they're like, "Oh my gosh, there must be all these like crazy stories that you have." And I'm like, "Yeah, there's a little bit of that." But a lot of what I do actually is as an HR business partner, I'm kind of this like business consultant with the leaders of the function. And my job is to ensure that they have the staffing that they need, um, that they have the resources to support their top talent, um, that they have a healthy performance review cycle. Um, but I do a lot of org planning. Um, so as an organization is growing or the business is growing, um, we start thinking about how the organization is going to be shaped. Do we need to bring in more senior leaders? Do we need to promote into more managers? Do we need to flatten an organization and make it wide? Or do we want to narrow the organization to focus in on very specific verticals? So I do a lot of consulting essentially throughout the day, but there definitely are the tactical HR things that we manage. So, you know, usually one to two times a year, there's a performance review cycle. So um, I'm just coming off the heels of that where we spend about a month to a month and a half um, going through different steps in the process of self-evaluation, manager evaluation, performance award uh, processing. Um, so it's a lot of fun things and then also a lot of challenging things, which I love in HR. Um, but specifically, I love the idea of working with the engineering organizations, um, primarily because they're building the thing that is being sold by a company or being used by users. And it's really fun to like see the inner workings of an engineering organization, but then see the output in the actual product that's being built. 
Now that you mentioned that, uh, you know, you talked about your professional track, and now you also called out the fact that you are a board member. Tell us more about what that is about and how do you balance that work with your primary responsibilities? Because it's a tricky subject when we talk about work-life balance, and I'm sure being on a board is not one of the more relaxing or easiest things to do. You know, contrary to popular belief, being on a board can actually be really, really fun. It is a lot of work at times, but it can be fun. So you're essentially advising a full-time staff or usually a volunteer staff, perhaps potentially in the org, um, on how they're supposed to run the organization. And uh, I'm new to Ada, but I'm not new to being on a board. Um, so I started out as early as in elementary school being on like student council. And then I moved into student government. So I've kind of used to doing this like advisory board type role in addition to my day job back when I was in school, it was like be a student, but also do these extracurricular activities. So for me, it's not like much skin on my back. Like I, I just love doing and giving back in addition to doing my day job. I would say specifically for Ada, it's been really fun to advise the significant growth that they're going to see in the next year. So they're currently in a grant process where Equality Can't Wait is the name of it. And we're reviewing a strategic plan that they're submitting to this organization to be reviewed to determine if they're going to get a larger grant. Um, we're advising uh, the executive director, CEO on how we want to position the organization and how they want to grow over time. Do we want to scale uh, globally, do we want to scale within the U.S.? Do we want to have more virtual programs? How do we brand the organization? How do we think about uh, building the organization out? So it's almost like doing a little bit of my day job, but doing it for a nonprofit purpose. So it's really fun to be able to do it. In terms of balancing time, though, I would say a lot of it is for me. Before I sign up to be on a board, I always ask what is the time commitment and also what is the cadence of commitment. So. Um, thankfully, this board is growing, the organization is in its uh, sort of really solid flexion point where it's going to double in size over the next year, if not triple. There's a lot of really great things that are happening in the organization, which means they also expanded their board and they expanded and changed how the board interacts. So we went from meeting monthly as a board to actually meeting every other month. And then the off months, we're actually doing task force meetings. And it's essentially just being an advisor. So yeah, it's really fun, uh, but definitely in terms of time, I just always build in my mental mo model that I'm gonna carve out X percentage of my time for, uh, for good purposes in addition to my day job. How hard is it to find an employer that is willing to allow you to balance that out? Because I feel like that's an area where not every company might be open to folks serving on a board somewhere else, even if it's a nonprofit. Yeah, that's a good call out. I mean, it depends on the stage of the company, honestly. And I think, you know, obviously every company has to make a decision on, are you doing something that would conflict with your current duties that would take you away from your day job? Um, you know, I work for a company that allows flexible work schedule, which means I get my work done when I can. Um, I also have the ability to, you know, take time off when I need to, whether it's taking care of my family on a, you know, on a flip of a dime, needing to take a day off, or if I'm just feeling burnout and I know that I can get my work done in four days this week and I take Friday off. So I've been really blessed to work at employers that also honor that. I typically ask about it in my interview process in terms of, you know, being involved in outside organizations and serving on boards. And, you know, when it's nonprofit, generally speaking, employers are comfortable with you doing that. I think it's when there's potential conflict of interest or if it's going to take you away from your job and make you less effective in your day job is when there's usually questions. 
and I mean, I'm in HR, so I could probably say this, like as you grow in your career over time, especially getting onto, you know, for-profit boards or doing side projects or, you know, doing your own, you know, startup on the side, like you definitely need to disclose that to the company when you're interviewing and talk to the compliance team to see if there are any potential conflicts of interest. Um, I know I do it on a regular basis, so it's definitely something to keep in mind, but I, I would say on the whole, like if it's a mission driven organization and it's not a conflict of interest with your current company, you generally should be able to do it. To that point and tangentially to what you called out around flexible work hours, one of the questions that I ask of every single guest is given the times that we're in and last year changed a lot of the workflows for a lot of folks and kind of forced us to work from home, which affected a lot of the flexible schedules, a lot of the ability to communicate. How did that change for you? Because the more I think about it, the more I realize that HR is one of those jobs that seems like you would need to have that face-to-face -face contact with people. You want to talk to people. You want to communicate very clearly and obviously. How has this changed for you in the past year? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. For me, the primary change has been being stuck at home, like not having the benefits of commuting to the office and you know, kind of separating home and work. Uh, so my partner and I, we, you know, we changed our living situation twice last year. We moved to a place that had a second bedroom where we could share an office and we quickly learned we could not share an office. So seven months later, we moved to an apartment that had three bedrooms essentially. And now we have our own separate office. So this is my office and the gym. He's got the kind of meditation space slash his office. And then we have our bedroom and the living room. So it's th the biggest change for me has been the living and working um, scenario. And then also creating boundaries of time when I'm working. I think in a world where I would have to spend an hour to an hour and a half commuting to the office. Now I got, I mean, this morning there was a 7 a.m. meeting on my calendar and then there was an eight o'clock meeting. And normally that wouldn't happen. I do think now that we're all working flexible schedules, there's a lot of starting early, staying late, that typically wouldn't happen as much. So that's why I constantly remind people of burnout and making sure that they don't burn themselves out. Uh, because contrary to popular belief, a lot of people just started working even harder because they didn't have that commute time. I would definitely say for HR, so uh, give you more context, I moved from San Francisco back to Seattle in my former role at Pinterest. And then I changed jobs. My partner and I both changed jobs when we moved back in May. Um, so I started at Snap in July. And so I had to onboard remotely and literally every person that I've been interacting with, including my boss, I haven't met in person before. Um, there's been a few edge cases where we've had to go to an office for a specific need and two or three people were there with a mask and staying six feet away from each other. But on the whole, everyone's virtual. I think I have enjoyed working remotely before in my previous role because I traveled so much and we go to different places. So I don't think the building rapport via, you know, video has ever been a challenge for me personally but i do think it's been interesting to watch some of the dynamics right that like on a team meeting in a more office-based world you know voices get kind of overlooked at the table and now there's like this screen of everyone on a call together and you know you can raise your hand virtually and then call people out and i feel like everyone's on mute and so you automatically wait to speak up. So I do feel like we're creating a very different culture right now. Um, but it's been really fun. I, I'm looking forward to a world where we come back to an office. But I also love flexibility of being able to just get my work done wherever I am and not have that be an issue. Whereas pre-COVID, I think 
you know, there was memes around being visible in the office and having personal connections with others. And right now, like there's no water cooler to go to and build connections. So everyone's just kind of focused on their job and focusing on building relationships with people who you directly work with on a regular basis. You know, the interesting thing you called out is a commute. It's probably one of the things that I appreciate the most right now about our situation is the fact that there is zero commute. And if I have a meeting at 7 a.m., I don't need to get up at 5. I can just get up at, you know, 6, 6.30, get ready, go into a meeting. And it's also funny that you called out the onboarding that's entirely remote. So earlier last year, I switched to Amazon before going back to Microsoft. And when I onboarded to AWS, I have never met any of the folks that I work with in person through my entire short tenure at AWS. I have not met a single person face to face. So we saw each other on video, but I wasn't sure if we would walk on the street, I'd recognize them and say, hey, you're that other PM that I used to work with, right? Maybe, maybe not. I want to take a step back to your career again. So you're in HR, why HR? What led you to make this career choice? Because it seems today, if you ask a lot of the students that work in STEM, their typical path is, I wanna be a product manager, an engineer, I wanna do data science, any of the fields that we called out earlier. You decided to go into HR. What drove that decision? So believe it or not, I did not choose to go into HR. HR kind of chose me. <laughs> so I, I'm actually an educator by training. So my undergraduate degree is in elementary education. I went to college starting out with a STEM major, uh, biology. I had this weird dream of becoming a doctor. And, and my path to that was going to become a science teacher and then eventually go back and get my, you know, go back to med school. Well, after my freshman year and my first bio class, I quickly learned I would not fit for like a biology major in college, but I love the idea of learning things and teaching things. So I stuck with the education track, but dropped the biology major and essentially learned that I, could, I love the idea of teaching and helping others. So I became an elementary school major, but then I was really active in college and I did like my fraternity. Uh, I was on a student leadership. I actually was, there's a theme here. I was a student trustee on the board of trustees for my undergrad. It was an elected position and I in love the leadership stuff. So I decided to actually go and get my master's in higher education. And so that is a specific degree that helps people prepare to help college students develop over time and basically be a really solid university administrator. So I worked in higher ed for about seven years, eight years, including my graduate time, um, before I stumbled upon somebody who was a college recruiter at Microsoft. And so I lived and worked on a college campus for eight years. And someone said, hey, there's this job that takes you out to you know, travel to campuses and recruit students, which is where I met you then. Like, I, I really was excited about the idea of helping people get job opportunities. What I didn't quite realize was I had an opportunity to influence the organization even more by bringing in folks from, under, you know, underrepresented non-traditional backgrounds. You went to a college campus that didn't have like thousands and thousands of CS majors. So there wasn't like the strong presence of large companies coming to recruit you. So my job was to like looking for the needle in a haystack. But then I also learned that I could help our team members, like our college recruiters, they were a little bit junior than me, but also like it was their first sort of professional role. And so I started doing like focus groups to learn about their challenges and concerns. And after I did a presentation to the recruiting managers, they basically said, you have an opportunity to like go into HR business partnership. And I didn't know what that was. 
So then they described what the role was. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've been doing that my whole life. Like I've been a counselor for my family and I was a university administrator where you have to work with multiple departments in the organization to provide a service to your students or an organization. And I landed in an HR role supporting the SQL Server engineering organization. And it was really fun. I loved working with the leader. I helped him scale. Um, we, you know, they were literally lifting SQL into the cloud. There are so many cool things that are happening. We onboarded 100 college hires. So I think for me, what I love about HR is that I'm basically helping an organization thrive over time. And I do that through the lens of understanding the work that needs to be done. And so I would say for anybody who is interested in HR, it's a really great field, especially in tech, because they need people that think like this. Like one of my favorite things is I think with a mathematic brain about people problems. And then I also root cause <laughs> and do a root cause analysis on a regular basis and then try to do a work back plan to help the business get to wherever they want to go. And I love talking to engineers because they don't always think of things in a people-related problem, not to stereotype, but they think in numbers and math problems and formulas. And so when I'm talking and coaching them through things, I'm like, we basically do a lot of if-then conversations. Like, if this occurs, then we're going to try this. If this occurs, then we'll try that. If this doesn't work, we'll try this. And usually we get to the same outcome, but I'm speaking a totally different language than I probably would if I was just talking to my mom about a problem at home. Um, and so I think it's really fun to be that translator, if you will, um, which is is why HR happens. And there are people who pursue HR from the beginning in their careers. I just was one of those and realized later in life that I actually was. I just didn't realize it. I was just in a different space. So it's interesting that you called out the fact about helping an engineering leader scale their organization because there's this opinion around that HR is not really involved in the business side of things. They're handling people problems, right? When we hear about somebody having an HR complaint or performance reviews, those kind of things. Tell me more about what's it like working on a business side because you have a deep understanding of the business. You actually worked very closely with an engineering team that shipped a one of the key products for Microsoft's cloud offering. Tell me more. Yeah, so there's usually different ways that you process like helping a leader grow an organization or scale or shrink. It, it really just depends on what the business objectives are. And so for me, I start with the problem statement of what are we trying to solve, which any engineer scientist would know, you start with a problem statement. And then we basically call out like, what are the challenges that you know are preventing us from solving this problem? And what resources will we need to put in place to solve that problem? So essentially, whenever I talk to a leader, I say, hey, what are your business objectives? And what are you trying to accomplish? What things would you need to have in place in order to do that? And do we have that today? If we don't have it today, do we need to acquire it? Do we need to grow it? Do we need to build it? Do we need to buy it? And so there's different ways that we think about it. And then if it ultimately lands down to needing to bring more people in or restructure an organization in a way that makes the most sense, we do design thinking together and whiteboard and literally whiteboard like we're dealing with a problem and decide, okay, if there are gaps in our problem, like we don't have a resource that we actually need, then we create a role and or roles if you need to, or we talk to finance or accounting and basically say, hey, business development, there's this really huge opportunity we have, and it's going to require X number of people to deliver it. We don't believe it will be, you know, you know, financially stable enough for us to hire, you know, in a brute force manner, one-to-one -one engineers, but there's this company over here that actually is building that thing that we need. Why don't we think about acquiring said company instead? So it's really fun to like talk through those problems, um, you know, in an unfortunate world where you have to shrink an organization because 
um, either a service has been deprecated and no one's leveraging it anymore um, and or we want to deprecate it because there's another opportunity. I then talk to the business about, hey, who are the people building that thing that's been deprecated and how can we shape the organization in a way that even though it may land in a reduction in workforce, it's the right reduction in workforce and what's the business justification for doing so. Um, so I love the good stuff, of course, like bringing people into the fold. Uh, we Literally, there's a big announcement that went out today about that position. I worked on the back end of that, which is really fun. So there's a lot of really cool things that HR can do that people don't know about. Um, obviously, yes, there's HR problems that we deal with, but the majority of my job is doing the strategic things. So tapping into the wealth of experience that you have, you worked at Microsoft, you worked at Pinterest, and now Snap. Now you're making me sound old. <laughs> that's, you know, it's experience. That's that's what I cheated myself because recently I looked at the calendar here as well. And I'm like, wow, it's been a while since I started. And now I help mentor some folks that are in their, you know, freshman year, sophomore year, like, wow, those kind of questions. I, I was not as smart back in the day as a lot of the folks now. You were smarter than you thought. Thank you. But you worked at Microsoft, Pinterest, and now Snap. I'm sure you have a lot of lessons learned throughout this journey. What are some of the highlights or some of the things that maybe surprised you as you were exploring this field? Yeah. You know, I think you and I have something really in common, which is we think like entrepreneurs and no matter where you are. And in fact, my first performance evaluation I ever received was from a manager in my first full-time job. And he actually said the quote word in my evaluation, David brings an entrepreneurial spirit to everything that he does. That can have benefits and trade-offs. <laughs> so I will say that thinking entrepreneurially for me has always been a benefit and an asset and I've leveraged it, meaning Whenever I look at a situation at work, I think about what is the traditional way of solving this situation and how can I solve it in a different way that either reduces impact to others or improves the experience of others. And so that's just how, how my brain works. And I think the tech industry in particular, like we really thrive on people thinking that way. And it, it, that can really set you apart from others who just say, what am I supposed to do? Tell me the instruction manual. Okay, I'll go build the thing. And so I think the lesson that I learned was don't be afraid to ask the question why um, or ask the question, how can we do this differently? Not for doing things differently sake, but because you've either seen an opportunity to do it in a better way. Also, don't be afraid to share an idea of what could be done differently, even if you have it in your mind. But curiosity is one of the biggest factors, I think, that has set in any leader that I've worked with apart um, at any of the companies that I've worked for because they're curious to do things differently versus just being a know-it-all, if you will. Um, so the, the buzzword that, of course, is out there is growth mindset, which I'm sure you're familiar with in Microsoft days, but also like just Carol Dweck's work on having an open mindset and thinking about what could be versus thinking very fixed in a sense that like this is the way it will always be, um, can really transform how you think about your career and where you go and where you want to work. So one lesson that I learned was leaving Microsoft. Um, I left Microsoft and took a huge bet to go to a pre-IPO smaller company. And I did it because I wanted to grow in my career as an HR professional in tech. And there's no knock against people who've been at Microsoft for years. And we both know like you can have an amazing career at Microsoft and larger companies where you work for multiple products and multiple divisions and get a very different experience every day. But there's something unique about leaving and going to a totally different company culture. 
and learning the lessons there. And it wasn't like the smoothest road at times because I was used to a much larger scale HR organization and we were building the thing that HR at Microsoft had already built 15 times over. Um, there are pain points when a company is smaller and in startup stage because they've been focused on building the thing that will drive revenue, not necessarily thinking about how do we grow the culture of our organization. There are some who do it really well and think about culture in addition to what they're building and what they're providing to their users. Um, and so you really just have to decide like, how, what am I going to learn from this experience? And so I would say that is one of the bigger nuggets that I've had is no matter how challenging or tiring or exciting something is, I always take a step back to ask, what am I learning from this experience? And how will this help me in the future? And also how can it help me help others in the future? And if you go in with that mindset of like, what am I learning from this experience versus just you know complaining or being frustrated? If I say, what's, what am I learning from this experience? It, it forces me to pause and say, let me express some gratitude for what I've learned versus this was really painful. Um, so I think those are the lessons that I've had along the way is just be curious and be open to no matter what you're doing, you're learning something. Um, you're gaining some experience that you may be able to apply in the future. It ties in so well to something that one of our previous guests, Charlie Kindle, called out on the podcast where he mentioned the concept of ownership. There is no them. It's on you to drive change. It's on you to push for that change and not put blame. But one of the things that you mentioned, and it's something that I'm sure a lot of folks encounter is despite the fact that you can have the growth mindset yourself, so you might be thinking very entrepreneurially or you might be thinking very broadly about the strategy of the organization, of a product, of a service, there's going to be pockets of folks in, I wanna call it like the old mindset, the fixed mindset, where they'll say, you know what, we've always done things this way, leave it as is. How do you fight against that? Do you have a strategy that you've seen in your career work that helps you mitigate or collaborate with those folks that generally are anti-change? Ask questions I and, and ask them in a very thoughtful and meaningful way. And the first question or the first person you need to ask a question is to yourself. And the first question I ask myself in those situations is, is it worth me challenging this issue? You know, will it benefit the organization? Is it worth my energy and time? Is it a good opportunity to improve the quality of fill in a blank myself, improve the quality of the experience of our users, improve the quality of? And if the answer is yes for any of those, then you know I say then you go and talk to the person who is you know most responsible or those who are tangentially responsible and start getting an understanding of context because I do think one of the challenges with encountering what is perceived to be fixed mindset initially is it's a lack of understanding of how and why we've always done it this way. And so I start with, so help me understand how we got to get to this place and why have we always done it this way? Are there specific benefits to this approach? Um, what are approaches have we, uh, have we tried in the past? And if we've tried those in the past, why didn't they work or why did we choose not to continue doing that? And so I think starting there builds rapport and understanding and also expresses empathy for the person who is currently saying it's the side we've always done it um, because you, they get to tell you the story. And usually you'll either get the story of how they got there or they may say, I don't know, we've always done it this way and we don't have time to think about redoing this process. 
And that could be your answer is there's not enough time and energy or resources available to change what we're doing. It would disrupt X, it would stall this process, or there's three other downstream things that are impacted by this. So we can't quickly pivot and change this process right now. And that could be your answer, or you may have an opening to say, hey, I've been thinking about doing things differently. Or, Would you mind, can I get a minute of your time to explain what I've been thinking and get your feedback on it? And I think that's where the conversation goes. You have to build that rapport and help them understand you're not trying to buck against the system for bucking against the system's sake. You are trying to improve the ultimate outcome for the organization. And I think whenever I start there, I'm good. I, I could say the opposite will totally get you, you know, in a really not so great place. If you come in with guns blazing to say, this is old school thinking, you guys have always done it this way and this is never going to work, or you need to change things that you won't win people over and you may even start, you know, you may even have be talking to deaf ears at that point. They won't hear you because they assume that you're attacking or judging what's already been built. Um, so curiosity, asking questions, and um, hopefully they will partner with you on thinking of creative solutions. It's the concept of you're spending your leadership capital if you're telling people what to do instead of clarifying, because there might be items where you might just not be aware of. And there's things that are as I refer to them as blind spots, where they made a certain decision because of specific constraints that I just don't see yet. And coming in and saying, do things my way, it is usually not, not conductive to nope. very good uh, <laughs> interpersonal relationships. I do want to ask, you know, you mentioned entrepreneurial spirit, and this is something that was your strength for some time. How do you develop that? What's your approach to building out this entrepreneurial spirit and thinking outside the box about all kinds of problems that you encounter in your career. I would say in terms of having an entrepreneurial spirit, I go back to how and why I have that. And let me be clear, not everyone is wired or needs to be an entrepreneur. Um, a lot of people in the world are, you know, I, I call them worker bees and it's not a bad thing, but it's like our society operates with people who need to pick up an oar and row. And then there are people who think about how to build the, the next and greatest boat and that's okay. And if everyone's trying to build something new and not like moving things forward, you just have a lot of people in a laboratory thinking about what could be and never actually building the thing that needs to be built. And so one, don't feel like this is me saying you must be entrepreneurial, but I do think you can approach your work with an entrepreneurial spirit, which means thinking creatively and root cause, like thinking about what you're doing today and making sure that you do it in the most efficient and, you know, effective way that nets out to everyone being positively impacted by it. And so for me, that's how I approach pretty much everything that I do in my day job. If I'm going to launch a new system, I think about who would be impacted by it and make sure that when I roll it out, I do everything possible to roll it out in a way that it doesn't interrupt someone else's workday or doesn't add more to their plate that is unnecessary. I also think about my own time and make sure that I'm not doing all the work and taking it off of people's plates that probably need to learn that experience and do it themselves. And I think that's how I approach my work. When I take a step back and figure out why I'm wired this way, a lot of it, to be honest, comes from my upbringing. My parents, it was almost out of necessity. My dad always had like a side job in addition to his day job. My parents always volunteered and did everything in schools or at our church. And so I always grew up knowing that like there's another way to approach this and they encouraged me to do the same. And a lot of it came from seeing other entrepreneurs in, you know, 
in life. Like my, I didn't, I got an allowance, but I also was taught that I needed to go mow the lawn of people's and neighborhoods and make a few extra dollars. And eventually that became my allowance. And basically I started working on my own as a kid. And then when I got to high school, I was involved in student leadership activities, but I got a side job in addition to being a student. And so I've always just thought creatively about how to make it in life. And I think that bled into my career um, over time and I still stayed there. And, and I know you have a question about this, so I'm going to go ahead and say like, in addition to my day job, like I somehow decided to pursue a doctorate degree. And although I paused on my studies, even that notion of going back to get my degree, it wasn't a like, oh, I must get my doctorate in my previous life in higher education. That would be the next step. Everyone, of course, that's working higher ed, if you want to become a dean of students or a vice president of student affairs, you generally need to have a doctorate. And so I left that career, though, and I didn't need to. But I realized there's this problem within the tech industry that we all know about, and it's diversity gap. Um, and I knew I was an educator and I'm working inside. How can I become a thought leader about, you know, that issue? Well, I, you know, I'll have to go get a doctorate. But for me, I wanted to do the research. I wanted to do the thing that said I did a study. Here's what I found out. And this is why I'm, I have a legitimate voice in this industry. I think a lot of people have legitimate voices, but getting that doctorate for me is essentially an entrepreneurial approach because I'm writing a, a, a paper. I'm doing a study that is unique to me that I can say I did this and I can prove that here were the outcomes of this particular study um, approved by a university. So I think it's just, it's really fun for me. And for some others, it's super stressful. It's sort of like being a business owner versus going to apply for a job. Like it depends on what drives you. If you love building things on your own, you love the scrappiness of it, you're okay with the risk of it not working out and failing, then yes, entrepreneurial approaches are totally for you, whether it's the entrepreneurial writing your, starting your job or thinking differently about how you do something at work. Because let's be clear, if you do something that's out of the box at your day job and it's a much larger organization, if it fails, you're still going to be responsible for that. The question is, are you okay with saying that failed? And here's what I learned from it. And I'm okay with the idea that like it failed and my performance review might be impacted by it. Or are you scared of that? And if you're scared of that, you don't want, you may have to play it a little safe and do things the way they've always been done or don't take on so much risk um, within your role. Very extensive answer. But now that you mentioned the Doctor of Education program, I want to better understand what led you to that decision. You kind of called out the fact that you want to get more hard data that you can bring to the table and say, here is why and I can prove it. Was that the sole motivation that you want to actually have proof of the problem that you're researching? Yes and no. I think, you know, I'll try to be briefer on this response. But basically, the idea of pursuing this degree came out of nowhere. Like I was talking with a colleague about finding more um, underrepresented individuals to recruit for open roles. And I kind of had this like epiphany that the reason that we don't have more people who look like me, black and brown or female folks in tech is specifically because our society has kind of created this unconscious bias of what an engineer looks like. And our society is also with the U.S. like resource schools in a very different way so that people who are in a poorer school system don't actually see software engineering as a potential career for themselves because they don't know what it is. And I'm one of those people. Like I literally was, I took calculus, which is the highest level of math you can take in high school as a junior. So I was two years ahead of my class in terms of math skills. But no one told me about software engineering. and I didn't know what it was. The only thing I really knew in terms of hard science that I could do was be an engineer, but I didn't know what that looked like and wasn't interested or be a doctor. And I pursued becoming a doctor because it's someone that I interacted with. 
I didn't really interact with software engineers or understand what code was. And so by the time I made it into tech, I basically just had this epiphany of like, how the hell did I get here? Like, how did I get into tech? And why aren't others getting there? And I realized I, it's basically a personal story of like what didn't happen to me and how can I make sure that it happens for others in the future? And the only way to do that in an effective way is to tell the story of those who did make it into it and how they were able to and see how we can scale that experience for others. So that was the motivation behind it. But I basically just had this like one-time conversation with someone and said, here's the problem. This is what we really need to do. But in order to tell someone this is what we need to do, I need to do a study to prove that that's what we need to do, if that makes sense. And I basically just said, like, oh, crap, I got to go back to school. Like, that's it hit me, literally. This woman when I was talking to was like, is this like a nonprofit you're starting or a program? And I was like, no, but I think I need to do something to prove that it's something that needs to be done. So I think I'm going back to school, mostly just a nerd, and I like that. I am just constantly impressed by, again, the breadth of the things that you're tackling. So in addition to being on the board and HR leader, you're also going for a doctorate. I mean... How do you find the time? It's uh, This is so unique. But it's also such an important area of research. Uh, and I'm so glad that we have somebody like you looking into that. For folks that want to get into HR, for folks that want to explore this field, are there any particular skills that, in your experience, you found that they help you succeed uh, that other folks can adapt and grow as well? Yeah, great question. So I would say a couple of things. It depends on the track you're going. If you're interested in working in HR, as a college student, I would suggest doing things that are specific to helping people in organizations. So, you know, I was a resident director, becoming a resident assistant in your residence halls, um, should they be open post-COVID, like that's a leadership position. Working in student centers where you can be an advisor or tutor, those types of experiences truly set you apart from other students who are just kind of getting their classwork done. It's very similar to like software engineers, right? When you're a computer science major, getting a degree is just like step P0. Like you need a degree in order to get into the industry and to get, you know, qualified for the job. But in order to be a standout candidate, you need to show that you've done something beyond your coursework that shows curiosity, shows drive, um, shows the ability to apply what you learn in the classroom to a different set of problems. And so I would say for those who are interested in going into tech, you need to have those experiences, whether it's a side project that you build with friends outside of class or a student organization or competition, coding, you know, uh, coding competitions are really helpful, um, but get that industry experience as soon as possible. And the easiest way is to think outside of the box. And Dan, you're one of those individuals, right? Like you found a contract opportunity that wasn't a traditional intern program. And we were able to then find you somehow um, and get you into the intern program and move on into your career. And now you're principal PM, which is just amazing. And I think getting those experiences early on is what will set you apart. So coursework is like P0. The next priority is getting something that shows that you've done something other than be just a student. And it's I, one track or the other for me, like I think tech for me is learning about tech industry type things. So for example, when I chose to be on a board, my previous life before I left Seattle the first time, I was on a board for a film festival and I really loved it because it was supportive of LGBT issues. I want to brand myself as somebody who cares about tech. So I specifically sought out a board appointment in terms of time, I prioritize it. If I'm gonna be on a nonprofit board, it needs to be related to tech and STEM. And I was able to literally like find a magical unicorn organization in ADA because um, they reached out to me and I was like, oh my gosh, I've been waiting for you. Um, so I would definitely say like, be very strategic about where you spend your time and show that you're telling the script where I wanna go um, in your resume. 
And I just want to call out that, you know, you, you talked about my career and I can attribute the bulk of where I am today thanks to, again, your help. So thank you for that very, very early on. Uh, it's been a it's been a process for sure. So let's talk about you mentioned learning skills hands on and a very hands on approach. That's kind of obvious if you think about HR. You can't read a book and say, okay, I'm good at this now. It's like you know the analogy that I use constantly is learning a musical instrument by reading a book. You just can't. You need to practice. What's your approach to learning those skills, right? Because it's hard when you're in college and maybe you don't have a club to join. Maybe you're somewhere in the community where that's not necessarily, you know, a big school where they might have a big organization. Maybe they don't, maybe it's a community college. How do you recommend folks develop those skills when those opportunities are lacking? So it depends, right? Like I think start small. Um, I jokingly tell people that at times I feel like the counselor for my immediate family uh, when there's conflict at home um, they live in a very you know, other side of the, the country. But if there's usually a, a two-way conflict or three-way conflict with my siblings or my parents and my siblings, I often get a call from one of them to tell me one version of the story and the other. And I basically end up coaching and doing HR type things um, in that way. And it really is about when have you applied a theory that you've learned to a problem? And so one of the theories or like frameworks of how to give feedback, for example, is situation, behavior, and impact. And really it's it's basically a, a, a narrative or a framing of narrative of how you give feedback and also how you can receive feedback. And essentially just saying you, you could do this better doesn't help an individual, right? So you need to be thoughtful about when in this situation, the behaviors that are exhibited and here is the overall impact. And by sharing it in those three sort of categories, it allows the person's brain to actually see what the situation was. Because you can usually people, if you get someone feedback, like, tell me when did I do that? And I think giving that situation behavior impact model is something that takes time and practice. And so practice with your friends, practice with your family. Um, those are some of the ways that you can learn the skill. But I do think being creative about finding opportunities where you can do it. So even if you are like, say, an administrative assistant in an office, you can find time during customer service situations where someone's asking a question or calling to walk them through that mental model. Um, you can also ask for additional project work while you're in that role. Um, so I would just say try hard small, but be creative about how you apply the learnings that you have in a classroom to real world situations. Fantastic. Well, thank you, David, for sharing these insights. Uh, again, I knew nothing about HR and thanks to the conversation with you, now I have a much better understanding of what the field is about. Uh, for folks that want to break in the HR field, one uncommon tip, what would, you, what would that be? For folks that have an aspiration to go into this field and the one thing that they would have a hard time finding on a blog or in a book or any kind of public medium, what would yours be? <laughs> um, it may sound weird, but don't be afraid to cold call. So by cold call, I mean reaching out, but be strategic about how you reach out. So I can tell you, I get hit up on LinkedIn multiple times a day. Um, I cannot respond to everyone. I only respond when there is a need for me to respond. Um, I definitely get a lot of, hey, I'd love to talk to you about this opportunity. And it's not an opportunity that I'm responsible for, or I'm not a recruiter, so I wouldn't be able to get them there. And I don't have a prior connection to them. But I do respond to messages of people who say, hey, I'm this major. I see you're an HR manager at this company. I'm really curious to learn about your career and your career path. Would you be willing to make time to talk to me about how you got to where you are? 
I almost always respond whether I have the time to meet or not because they've been very thoughtful. Um, my uncommon tip is find somebody with a title that you want to have at the company that you want to work in, reach out to them and tell them why you want to talk to them and start with an informational conversation first to learn about their experience. It could lead to a referral. It could lead to you just making another connection, but be strategic about it. Or another idea, find someone who graduated from your university. You can search on LinkedIn for it and say, hey, you graduated from my school and you now work X. Like those cold calls could work out. You'll probably get nine no's or no responses and one yes, but that one yes can get you there. So don't be afraid to do it. Just don't reach out to randos and say, hey, I want to talk to you. Help me because you won't get a response. <laughs> can I get a job referral, David? <laughs> <laughs> right. I would refer you then, but that's because I know you. <laughs> right, right. Network, super, super important. So David, where can folks find more about you online? Yeah, great question. Uh, LinkedIn is kind of my main medium. Uh, so you can find me on LinkedIn, David Daniels. Um, you can also just send me a message there and I'd be happy to connect. Um, that's kind of where I leave my social media for my professional life, to be honest, because it's the only one that I can manage on a regular basis. Um, I do have a Medium page, but I'm really bad about writing things out. I only have one posting so far, but um, you can find me on Medium as well. Um, but let's start with LinkedIn. It's probably the best way to find me. LinkedIn, Dab Dan. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, David, for being here. I learned a lot. I hope our folks listening to this will learn as well. And uh, I do want to have you on this podcast again in the future because I have way more questions and we just didn't have enough time. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for being here, David. Awesome, Dan. Well, it was really great to see you. Thanks for having me. Bye.